Good morning. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, go with me to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. We'll be in verses, uh, let's see, 11 through the end. Let me start with this thought. How does the gospel come differently to various people? Have you ever thought about how the gospel comes differently to various people? My guess is, my, and, and from observation, I believe, and in, in, I, I think I've seen this, that we've been taught that, that the gospel certainly reaches people but I wonder, again, how much we've thought about how God sends the gospel differently to people. How does it come in certain ways to certain kinds of people? I think for many of us, the way we've thought about the good news of Jesus, the, the life, the, the righteous life lived on our behalf, the, the death that pays the penalty for our sins, and then the powerful resurrection and the overcoming of death by Jesus, and the will of His Father to do so. And that is hope for sinners. Those facts we believe to be true and good and right. How many of us consider that or uh, maybe have thought that that is the way, uh, presenting those facts is the way someone is rescued. The way someone is rescued out of darkness. That if we just get the facts out there, you know, if that person is going to get saved, they're going to get saved. If that person is going to be rescued from darkness and destruction, they're going to be rescued from darkness and destruction. So I just need to tell people the facts of Jesus dying for their sins, and, and if they're going to get saved, if God's going to rescue them, He will do it. But I want to argue this morning that this is not the way God works. Now certainly, He does not save apart from the facts of the good news of Jesus. He doesn't save apart from knowing the facts of the gospel. But he doesn't always save someone merely by a presentation of the facts. <coughs> Most of us in this room <coughs> probably understand, <coughs> goodness, <coughs> goodness. <coughs> Most of us, there we go, now my voice is weird. <coughs> at least I don't sound like a, at least I don't sound like a frog, you know. <coughs> yeah, we can, we can edit this from the podcast, there we go. Most of us in this room, <laughs> there we go, there it comes. <coughs> most of us in this room understand, most of us probably understand the facts of the gospel, I just gave them. But what we don't understand nearly enough 
is the God of the gospel and how he works to bring the gospel to each individual person that he rescues. And that's what I want to look at with you this morning. Let's begin in verse 11. We're going to read about Lydia, then we're going to read about the slave girl in a few minutes, and then we're going to read about the Philippian jailer at the end. Let's begin in verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatria, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And she was baptized in her household as well. And she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. I want to go ahead and pray for our time here. Father, I pray that uh, we would see an incredible, gracious, and wise careful and tender God behind every word of this passage. One that is all-knowing, has created us uniquely, and rescues us uniquely, but all through the power of your gospel. So may we worship you as such a God this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. First thing I want you to see is this, God rescues some By giving them something more glorious to behold. God rescues some by giving them something more glorious to behold. That is true. There is overlap of these various points that I think the text is making. And we all ultimately have to behold something more glorious. I mean, that is something true. But of all of us, but the gospel, we're talking about how the gospel comes to Lydia initially. God rescues some by giving them something more glorious to behold. Let's take a look at Lydia. Let's, let's try to understand who Lydia was here for a few moments. This will help us understand how the gospel comes to her. <clears throat> Lydia was a successful, wealthy, God-fearing woman. Say, so how do you know this? She sold purple. She sold, why would Paul tell us that she sells purple? Purple. Why would he share such a random fact? It's like he's saying there was a woman praying and she liked puppies. Okay, Luke, what's the point? Luke shares this because he wants us to know what's important to this woman. He's describing, if you notice, he does various aspects in each one of these uh, stories, this, this kind of set of three stories where he is telling us a bit about the person and then he tells us how the person is rescued. And so he's telling us something about Lydia when he says she was a seller of purple. You see, purple was hard to make. Purple was worn by royalty. It was expensive. And really only the wealthy wore it. And she was likely made wealthy by selling it. I think 
part of what Luke is trying to help us understand here. By, like, he could have just said to us, she was a prominent woman who was wealthy. But instead he tells us the very thing of which she sells. And that thing at which she sells happens to be very beautiful, very precious, very wonderful. If you know much about the Gospels and what happens with our Christ, you hopefully are beginning to connect some dots here. There's purple is beautiful. It's important. It's wonderful. Again, he could have told us that she was just simply wealthy and connected with wealthy people, but instead, he tells us that she sells something beautiful. She understands something admirable. She's a successful, wealthy, God-fearing woman. She's also an altogether admirable person. She was a decent woman and a Bible-seeking woman. She was a God-fearing woman, Luke tells us. She was here to pray. She wasn't following Paul along. She wasn't, she wasn't in the synagogue because the Jewish leaders had beckoned her to come. Her and some ladies are in a place of prayer. They're there of their own accord, their own desires, and they were there to pray. She was a, a Gloria Furman. She was a, a Jackie Hill Perry or a Nancy Lee Damas Wolgamoff. How do you say her last name? Her new last name. That was Lydia. Now here's the question. Now we have to ask the question. We know a little bit about Lydia. How does the gospel come to Lydia? How does God rescue Lydia? She was in a Bible study at some kind of meeting space. And here comes Paul, Silas, and if you've paid attention to the pronouns here, you'll notice Luke is a part of this group now. Paul, Silas, and Luke. And Luke's just going to be present for a little bit, and then he's going to disappear again. But he's present now with Paul and Silas. They come in, they came in, they, they went looking for the next place to share the gospel, to, to move the kingdom of God forward. They come in, they sit down, even though, and here's what I want you to notice, they come in and they sit down even though there were no men present. Now, I bring this up because Paul gets such a bad rap often for the way he supposedly treats women and how women's roles in the church and so on and so forth. And yet here, hot on the path of spreading the gospel, instead of saying there are no men here, there are no influencers, no powerful people We will move on. Instead of saying that, they stay. They sit down. And they have a discussion with these ladies. Now, again, what do we know about Lydia? Lydia was a God-fearer. What did this mean? For Lydia to be a God-fearer, it meant this, that she was stuck in between two places. So she was not a Jew, but she was a Gentile who feared God. It meant that she was stuck in between the emptiness of the world and the legalism in Judaism at this time. You see, she, as a God-fearing Gentile, 
what had happened is she'd come to the conclusion by God's grace that there was emptiness in living for herself. That the way the, the pagans, the way the, the, the rest of the Gentiles would live was they just lived for themselves. They just wanted things for themselves. They wanted to make themselves happy. Even in serving other people, they were just doing it to make themselves happy. And there was an emptiness in this, and she understood that. But then on this other side, as a Gentile, she also felt the burdens of having to save herself through good works. So do you understand the difficulty here for Lydia? The position of Lydia here? I think many of us can probably relate well to Lydia. I'm sure many of your friends and her co-workers or classmates can relate well to Lydia. You know the emptiness of the world. Why? Because you keep running there time after time, day after day, trying to find fulfillment, trying to find satisfaction. You can't find it. It's emptiness, ultimately. But on this side, you keep running to your works to rescue you and make you right before God. And you feel the burdensomeness of that, the weight of that, the frustration of that. I, w- I would argue, I would imagine if I just sit down and we would have a one-on-one conversation that every person in here can relate to Lydia. So what, what does Paul do? Now admittedly, a little of this is speculation, but I think it fits the context. Where did Paul just leave? Paul just left the Jerusalem council. What was he discussing and debating and defending in the Jerusalem council, right? Legalism versus grace. Legalism versus grace. Must they keep the law? Or is the good news of Jesus grace to those who hear? Is it unmerited favor? Is it We are made right before God by the work of someone else, not by the works of our own hands. And so what does he undoubtedly begin to say to Lydia? You are not saved by what you do. You are saved, Lydia. You are saved by faith in what Jesus did for you. Listen, there is emptiness in living for yourself as the pagans do. But it is also impossible, Lydia, for you to earn your way to Him. But Jesus died for you. Undoubtedly, in so many words, I'm sure Paul presents this to Lydia. And then what does it say? This is real important. It says that the Lord directly, Himself directly, changes the heart of this woman. He, God, sovereignly, personally, reaches into Lydia's heart and changes Lydia's heart. I'm not going to preach on the doctrine of regeneration, but that's what's happening here for Lydia. God is reaching into her heart and He changes her heart. What's it say? It says, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. This is such a marvelous phrase for us to look at this morning. To pay attention. That's such a, a, 
no offense to the ESV, it's such a weak understanding of what's happening at this point for Lydia. What this means is the, the idea of to pay attention, it means to, to respond. It means to be captivated by this. It means to, to, to be uh, drawn to, if you will. Keller said this, she didn't just believe, she began to find what Paul was saying wonderful. She began to, to see it, this truth that Paul was saying, she began to see it as glorious, as something worthy, as something beautiful, as something, I gotta have that just like purple. It's beautiful. The Lord changed the object of her wonder. She had much to marvel at in her own life. She was wealthy. She had prominence. She sold beautiful linen. She knew what wonderful things looked like. We also can tell from the being a God-fearer that she was gazing at the works she could do with her hands. And I'm sure she felt the empty burden of such a task. But now, but now, because God reaches in and takes her heart and points it, if you will, in the right direction and says, now let me give you something that is genuinely worthy of your marvel and your wonder. The world's empty. You can't be right bef by, before God on your own hands. But by grace, Jesus has rescued you. And she begins to see it as marvelous and beautiful. She became captivated by the glory of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is where many of us are at. Even sometimes spend days or weeks in the same place. We gaze at the wonder of our hands. My, look at me. I'm not like the pagans who worship those filthy idols. I go to Bible study. I pray. I look at my Bible. But all along the journey, our gaze is at the wonder of our hands. We're stuck. You know the emptiness of worshiping yourself like the world does, but at the same time, you know the frustration of trying to make yourself perfect before God. I've got to prove myself. I've got to prove myself. And what the Spirit does to God's children is He reaches in, and He takes our hearts, and He says, Look, your works are filthy rags. What Jesus did is worthy of your marvel. I want to encourage you practically here, or even further practically, is that remember your walk with the Lord is your walk, your walk with the Lord is largely lived out on the horizontal. What I mean by that is your relationships, especially with the body of Christ, is a window into your walk with Jesus. 
And so, if you're walking, trying to live this righteous life and earn your way, you'll probably be making other people try to earn their way with you, or you'll try to prove yourself to them. But just because you lay your head down at night and say, Lord, I know I am not right before you based upon my hands, but then you go on the whole next day trying to prove yourself. You see the disconnect. And what he's saying, what he's telling us today for us in this room is that, listen, if your gaze is on your hands, take them off. If your gaze is on something else that you think is beautiful and marvelous, there is nothing as marvelous and as beautiful to look at as the good, the good news that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and for mine. And then as we think about the people that, that we work with, that we, that we uh, are neighbors with, that we go to school with, for some of them, they need something more beautiful to look at. Because their attention is on something certainly that might be glorious, and, or that might be beautiful and wonderful to look at, but it is not as wonderful to look at as the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I think the question for us, if we're thinking about how do, how do I then take the gospel to these people? Maybe part of our role in their life is to show them how marvelous the gospel is. Okay, how do you do that? Walk in humble, repentant dependence and faith on the gospel in front of them where they can see it. Where they see it. It's just one of the ways. But it's certainly a way. Lastly, I would say this. Ask the Lord to help you take the gaze off yourself. And to put it on Christ. Let's continue verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. And brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. I love this line here. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. I love it. So God rescues some by giving them a better master to serve. God rescues some by giving them a better master to serve. Again, the statement is ultimately true for all of us. We all serve of some master. Whatever we desire most, that is our master. So in a sense, this is true for every person. But we're talking here how the gospel is initially coming to the slave girl. So let's take a look at the slave girl. She was a slave both inwardly and outwardly. Don't miss both of these realities. She says, these are servants of the Most High God 
who are telling you the way to be saved. Most of us, when we hear that, we're going, well, great, awesome, Paul, don't stop her. She's like, she's like John the Baptist, right? She's just announcing the way of the gospel coming as we proclaim it. But the problem was this, is that this could have easily been interpreted by any of them in Philippi as the highest God in one's own pantheon of gods. That was the danger. They're coming to the most high God. Well, it could be your most high God or this most high God. On her lips, even the assertion that there was a way of salvation could so easily have been interpreted in a polytheistic and pagan fashion. Paul's concern was that she was saying these things under the influence of an evil spirit and was thus confusing his pagan audience. So both the vocal piece, like the context of which the truth is being said, is important, along with the actual truth that's being said. May that be a a side reminder for us. But again, what I want you to see is that the concern for confusing the gospel message. Again, a small lesson here on perception. But let's talk a little more about the slave girl. Outwardly and inwardly. Outwardly, she would have been in slavery, slavery probably because uh, her parents sold her into slavery. She probably would have been 10 to 14 years old, likely. But she could tell the future. Like she, she had a weird knowledge of things, and that would actually happen. Otherwise, why, why, she's making money, and she's making lots of money. She's making enough money that's worthy of stoning these people over, Paul and such. She could tell the future. She was, she was a woman who, like Lydia, made lots of money. But unlike Lydia, she made lots of money for somebody else. She was economically oppressed. She was physically even oppressed. She was a slave. Her masters were abusive. And so how do you know that? Listen, any exploitation of someone else for personal gain is abuse. So outwardly, she was a slave. Outwardly, inwardly, she was a slave who was oppressed by inner demons. We also know that inwardly, we're all slaves to whatever our own evil desires are. Look what Keller said. He said this, If Lydia is an owner of a high-end boutique for the rich people, This girl is a sort of drug-addicted prostitute who's exploited by her pimps living in a crack house someplace. So how's the gospel come to the slave? The story tells us that she kept up her actions for days and days. And this is how you know, like, the Bible's not just a legend, because you don't tell like the hero of the story that he just gets annoyed. Like, like you wouldn't do that. Cause it's not just fake. Because you, you, that makes Paul look bad, right? Where's your patience at, Paul? He gets annoyed. 
And he tells her to stop. But here's what you notice. First of all, the gospel work here was not first and foremost a goal to set her free from her earthly masters, although that certainly was a result and should be a goal. But the gospel comes to set her free from her inward masters, the demons that oppressed her, the inward evil of her own heart as well. Listen, where Lydia needed exhortation from a brother and the Spirit to change her affections, listen to me, the slave girl needed power. Where Lydia needed a discussion about the Bible, the slave girl needed the intervention of something powerful. Lydia needed something, as Keller said, very rational. But the slave girl needed something powerful. Lydia was a good person stuck between emptiness and burden. She needed to know that Jesus had forgiven her sins. This girl didn't just need a message of forgiveness. She needed a new master. She needed a loving yet powerful master to come in and dethrone the reigning master of her life. And what's Paul say? In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus come out. What's he doing? What's he mean? What he means is the name of Jesus is more powerful than the name of your master. And he is coming to dethrone the master in your heart. Some of you know exactly what's going on in this girl's life because You've either experienced it or are experiencing it now. Some of you are subjected regularly to ruthless masters. Let's talk practically, physically here for a few moments, externally if you will. <clears throat> you may not need to think physical abuse, or maybe you do. But I want us to think only of physical abuse. But what is usually less noticed in ruthless masters and identifying them as mental and emotional manipulation for one's own gain. It's just another form of exploitation. We're all tempted to do the same thing, to exploit other people for our good. A ruthless master in someone else's life. I've seen this example in churches. I've experienced it even in my own life. People wanting to have persuasion, particularly in a leader's life, wanting to get them to do certain things, make certain decisions, <clears throat> wanting to use them for their own happiness, for their own pleasure, for their own gain, for their own agenda. And as long as it looks like they have that kind of persuasion or mastery in someone's life, they are happy. But when they feel like they begin to lose it, they start picking up metaphorical stones to throw. It's a 
example of a ruthless master. That could be your children. It could be your spouse. It could be your boss at work. On the other hand, all of us experience the pain of the ruthless masters of our own sinful desire. We all have desires that we that are beside Christ, that are instead of Christ, instead of the Father. And, and whatever we desire most is that which we are slaves to. <clears throat> whatever you want most, that is your master. So some of you want to be the best at whatever you're doing. You've got to prove to yourself that you got it, that I can do this. And day after day you fail, or you experience success for maybe a season, but eventually it comes to a close. And you hate it. Your desire turns on you when you fail, saying, see, you're not good enough. Others of you run from hard things so much that you end up with a backlog of brokenness all around you because you're so afraid to say and do what needs to be done. Comfort is your master. But you know this and you hate it and you see it. And here's what... The text is saying to you, to each one of us, the gospel has the power to dethrone the master in your life and your heart. The gospel alone has the power to dethrone the master of your life and heart. Indeed, if you have been redeemed, the gospel has the power to set you free. The good news for you is that Jesus is the better master. Turn to Him. Why do you keep turning to that master of control or that master of of affirmation of somebody else? Just for that master to turn around and exploit you. Jesus won't exploit you. He died for you. What master says, you know what? I will lay down my life for you. For you. None of your other masters will do that. None of them. The gospel comes to you as it did the girl saying, you are no longer a slave, you're free. Take off your chains and walk. Let's continue reading verse 19. Paul and Silas. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Let me pause here for just a second. Notice the real reason. The real reason that they want to get rid of Paul and Silas is because of their money. But then they come in manipulating, just like they do the girl, come in manipulating the magistrates, the rulers, Trying to give them reasons. I, I, I do this too. 
it really bothers me. I see it other places probably should bother me more when I do it myself. We try to convince someone to do something with really not our reasons. We're really just after selfishness. And so we try to, we try to present a good case of why they should do this when it's really just we want it for ourselves. That's what they're doing here. They come in, they're saying, like, the real reason is we just want our money, but we're going to sell you this package of goods to try and convince you. All, all they're doing is manipulating the leaders. That's a side note. That was free. Um, the crowd joined, it says, in attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer awoke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their hands. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. The third way, certainly not a limited list God rescues some by giving them something practical that grips their hearts. God rescues some by giving something practical. Let's talk about the kind of man. He was a Roman. He was a loyal subject. He was a committed man. He was likely ex-military. This is what they gave to retired military people in Rome. They would give them jobs like this, like jail keepers and such. We also know that he was brutal, mean, merciless. He throws them into the cell while they were bloody and broken. Throws them in. Why? How do we... Because he doesn't clean them up until post-salvation. He throws them into the cell. He puts them in the stocks. Which he wasn't necessarily told to do. Now how does the gospel come to this Gentile, Roman, merciless, committed jailer? What do you want you to notice Paul does not launch into the gospel with this guy. You notice that? Also, another interesting fact here is Paul doesn't claim his Roman citizenry until later. His citizenship, he doesn't claim it now. He could have. And it would have scared them to death, and he would have likely never been put into that jail. 
He claims it later, but for a reason. Because Paul is going, you know what? My circumstances, they can serve God's purpose. So he doesn't say it here, but he also doesn't launch straight into the gospel with this guy. He doesn't pull out his gospel track. He doesn't leave it in the bathroom for the jailer to find. He doesn't walk him down the Roman road, although that would be pretty contextual, wouldn't it? Instead, the jailer needs to see the gospel at work. He needs to see the gospel at work. Uh, again, though, back to Lydia. Lydia didn't need to see the gospel at work. She needed to hear the truth. Now, we all need to hear the truth, but we're talking about what is the package in which the gospel comes. Lydia's, it was something beautiful. The slave girl, something powerful. For him, it's something practical. He needs to see something practical. Again, Lydia needed something to capture her attention. The slave needed something powerful to set her free. The jailer needed something practical. And here God uses a catastrophic event, an earthquake, to rattle this guy's grip on reality. I want you to see two things. Two things here with the jailer and Paul and Silas. First of all, the jailer inflicts suffering, but they respond in peace and joy. The jailer was cruel, and yet they respond in kindness and forgiveness. Let's talk about those two things real quick. In the face of suffering, inflicted in part by the jailer, it says in verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were doing what? Praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Think about that, right? Been, they've been beaten with rods. They're thrown into jail. They're put into stocks. They're still bloody and unclean and broken and hurting. And in the face of the other prisoners and the jailers, they're singing and praying to God. What they see, what the others see in Paul and Silas, they saw joy and peace in the midst of the unwarranted, certainly, suffering, the unjustified suffering. But then also notice that in the face of cruelty, what does he experience from Paul and Silas? You see, the jailer sees in the face of his cruelty and he experiences something. It's very practical. It's right in his face. He could feel, listen, the jailer could feel the shaking of the cells and the loss of his prisoners and the impending death sentence on his life for the failure to keep his prisoners secure. He walks into the cell with the sword about to pierce his skin. And then he hears, Stop! Don't kill yourself! We are all still Paul knew, listen, 
Paul knew that he was wrongfully charged and knew that he could appeal to Rome at any moment. But he stays in the jail cell. What's so practical about that? Their staying saved the jailer's life. Listen, we live in a culture of self-assertion. I've got to assert myself. I've got to go after what's good for me. I've got to make sure I'm safe. I've got to make sure my plans happen. I've got to make sure my money is spent well. I've got to make sure my things come the way they're supposed to come. I've got self-assertion. If there was anyone who had a right to walk out of that jail cell at this moment, it was Paul. Kind of like someone else on a cross. And yet he stays you see, what you got to understand is that the jailer, if his people would have left, he would be put to death for failing his job, without question. But their staying saved the jailer's life. You see, they gave up their life to save the jailer's life. In the face of cruelty, Cruelty from the jailer himself even. They treated the merciless with mercy. They treated the unkind jailer with kindness. It doesn't get any more practical than that. And what's it say? The jailer was astonished. And he fell down to the ground. What must I do to be saved? He says, what must I do to be saved? You see, the jailer sees what's happening. Paul and Silas give up their lives for his. Don't do it. We're still in here. And the jailer goes, this God that has changed you, that has somehow made you merciful to me, has made you kind to me, that God, he If he saved you, he must be able to save me. What must I do to be saved? But then what does, what do they tell him? What do, what do they tell him? See, the jailer, like all of us, wanted something to do. Tell me what I can do to grab the salvation. Tell me how I can earn it. And what does Paul say to him? Just believe in what he's done for you. Just look up. Kind of like Moses and the serpents. Just look up and be healed. The rod. Just look up and be healed. Kind of sounds like Calvary. Just look up at the cross and be healed. Jailer, there's nothing you can do. Look to Christ. He has saved you. He died for you. Some of you have been right here or are right here right now. God has shaken your life with something very practical. Maybe your marriage isn't where you had hoped it would be. 
Maybe you're experiencing the earthquake of an idol crashing upon you. Maybe parenting isn't going the way you want it or a job. There's some kind of practical thing that God is using to speak to you. But the problem is, is that you keep running trying to do, do, do yourself. To you, I say, stop it. Look up. Look up at Jesus and be healed and be saved. Sure, you may have to go finish a task that lies before you, but you can do it with your heart healed. Listen, the gospel is for everybody, but it comes to people differently. The facts don't change, and the facts have to be known. But the way it's packaged looks differently for different people. The gospel came to a wealthy, God-fearing woman, an oppressed slave girl, and a blue-collared Gentile Roman jailer. And it came differently to each of these people. Again, the contents never change, but the package it's in is so beautifully tailored by God to the people He has chosen to rescue. For Lydia, God captured the wonder of her heart. For the slave girl, God, God's power broke the bondage of her slavery. And for the jailer, God showed the gospel very practically to him. No matter who you are, where you come from, or where you are headed, good or otherwise, you and I need Jesus. Some of you may not even be saved because the gospel has not come to you in a way that has changed your life. I know, I just took a, you know, a, grenade and just kind of toss it into the crowd and I'm not going to take off running. Here's the deal. For some of us, we just heard some facts and we go, okay, well, I need those facts. I need a ticket to heaven. I'm going to be saved. Okay. And we said some prayer. And, and then, and then you, you look at your life, you go, why? I'm hardly even following Jesus, or at least what I'm looking like, is that, am I really following him? And what, what's what? For some of us, it came as facts, just something facts, and you needed something that was beautiful. For some, it came as emotions, but what you needed was something practical. Here's what I know. Whatever it is that is needed, God knows. God knows. And if God has called you, He will save you, and He knows just what your heart needs. Jesus died robed in purple clothing. He had a crown of royalty on his head and he was mocked. But through his bloody face is the wonder of the cross. A love that captures the gaze of the broken and needy. Jesus became a slave, a slave unto death even. His chains in the form of a cross. He was exploited for the benefit of the Jews. 
And in the resurrection, he was made powerful to overcome the bondage of death. Jesus, by putting on the chains of the cross, shows us that practically freedom is found nowhere but right in the middle of God's plan, no matter the circumstances. Paul and Silas understood this. We don't need to leave the jail cell. We stay right here because this is God's plan. And God uses that to rescue the jailer. Listen, God's gospel is dynamic. It's multifaceted. It's the same message, but different package. Don't you see, listen, how gracious God has been to rescue you and I with the same gospel, but in a unique and careful way tailored to the precise way that He has made each one of us. Might it also be true that your coworker, your neighbor, your family member, your friend, your child might need to hear the gospel in a different package than you did? Might they need to hear it in a different way than you did? Now listen, here's the, I, I don't want to leave you with going, because some of you are going to go, oh my goodness, uh, how do I figure this out? How do I figure out how, how to share the gospel in this way? I mean, ultimately, it's God's work. Ultimately, that's God's doing. It's ultimately, it's God's spirit at work. Our role is to walk in the spirit, Right? Pray, read the scriptures, abide in Christ, trust in Him, ask Him to use us in these people's lives. Listen, He might just send an earthquake. He might just lead you to happen upon some ladies praying, but don't know who they're praying to. He might introduce you to a slave girl. You don't have the power to set the slave girl free, but He does. You don't have the power to set your child free, but he does. You may not know what your child needs. You may not know what your coworker needs. You may not know what your own heart needs, but he does. And he rescues his people. And if there's anything that you should walk away seeing is that the gospel is for everybody. And God himself rescues his people in ways that they need to be rescued. He rescues them from destruction. He rescues them from slavery. He rescues them from the wrong marvel. And he does it in ways that are careful and tender and appropriate to those people. And from there, you and I must marvel at His graciousness to do that for us. Let's pray. Father, thank You for rescuing my heart in just the way that my heart and mind needed it. Father, for You know my frame. Father, You know the bad fruit that comes even from the way 
which you've even made me. When my flesh takes over, it, it fruits in bad ways. But, but Father, you know what makes my heart beat. You know what makes each one of our hearts beat. It, you know what makes each one of our minds tick. Father, may you rescue those in this room that need rescued even now. She would lead their hearts to repentance and faith in the work of your son Jesus. She would set those in slavery free from their horrid masters to be replaced by you, Father, your son Jesus, the Spirit, a master that will not exploit them. Father, may you change the gaze from things that are maybe even wonderful to look at, but not as wonderful as your Son, Jesus, and the truth of the death and resurrection of His life. Father, may you help those in very practical situations to see that your hand is at work turning the direction of their hearts the worship of their hearts. Well, I pray that you would uh, do these things this morning. That you would lead us gently and appropriately as you always do. And may we then respond likewise, doing that to other people. Father, we give you praise for this. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.